Welcome, welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tea leaves or palmistry. It is but a humble radiology podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me, definitely aged greater than 35 years and definitely taller than 1.5 centimetres, is my co-host, Frank Gaylard. Hello, Andrew. I definitely am more than 35. I was at the gym maybe uh, last week. As in, yep. I go to the gym more than once every couple of weeks, but this happened <laughs> a week ago. And there was a, a young guy lifting some insane amount of weights and he had his phone with his driver's license. And in Australia, or at least Victoria, on the back of the driver's license, uh, two numbers. And I looked at it and it was 0405. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. He's like born a day before my mum. And then I thought, hang on. No, no, that's not right. That's the year and the month. And so he's actually born in 2005. And then I quickly thought, oh, my God, I was already married. I was halfway through my training in 2005 when this guy was born. And I had this deep feeling of being old. And then I looked at how much he was lifting and I thought, I'm old and weak. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. For today's episode, Frank, I've invited head and neck and neuroradiologist Jenny Huang from Johns Hopkins to read her story about incidental thyroid nodules in the ACR white paper. I know thyroid nodules sounds a bit boring, but I think you'll enjoy this. And there's lots to definitely think about from Jenny's story and her journey. Um, She actually mentions in this recording, Frank, so listen out for it. She Mm -hmm. mentions that you and me, I think, are heroes. She calls us heroes. So listen out for that. (laughs) Jenny's amazing. She's fantastic. And she's done so much important work. And I can't wait to hear this talk. Speaking of heroes, I watched Ant-Man Quantumania recently. Have you seen that one? Uh, Is that the first Ant-Man or is that the second one? No, this is the one that's just in cinemas now. Oh, isn't it Ant-Man versus Wasp or something in cinemas now? No, this one's Quantum Mania. <laughs> so they head down they head down into this quantum realm. Oh, okay. In fact, did you know that Ant-Man, the word, actually appears within Quantum Mania? Oh, so it does. That's a very clever poster, no doubt. Yeah, it's probably the most clever thing about this film, unfortunately. Do you, do you get into the Marvel kind of movies? I'm sorry that all my answers are complicated but there's no easy yes or no. So the simple answer is I think AI could be writing all of them. They're so derivative and boring and the same that no, I don't like them. Except firstly, I've seen all of them because my kids were the right age when they were coming out. And I watch that kind of movie when I'm running on a treadmill. Mm -hmm. And so now I've actually started going back through the whole Marvel cinematic universe in internal chronological order. In timeline order. Yep. Um, And so I'm up to Thor, the first one. And there's nothing like watching CGI robots hitting each other or superheroes smashing buildings (laughs) to take my mind off the fact that I find exercising really boring. So I'm up to Thor. He's got this really weird in the first one badly done dye job on his beard that I'd never noticed. Oh. It's it's really noticeably bad. Still, you know, he, he hits things. I run. I don't notice. It's all good. <laughs> the wife of the podcast, she really loves the Marvel 
movies in the universe. So uh, I've seen them all. Or does she just like Chris Hemsworth with his top off? <laughs> oh, yeah. You've got to hand it to Marvel. I mean, a lot of the lead characters are very, you know, not just charismatic, but really likable yeah. kind of people like Paul Rudd in Ant-Man. Like it's a bad movie in my opinion, but he is just likable no matter what. You can say that about a lot of their their characters. It's what they do well that DC seems incapable of doing, even once. Even getting The Rock, who is very, very likable, and then put him in a DC movie, no, even he can't save it. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Um, Given we're on the topic of movies... Yes. The Academy Awards are coming up this weekend. And in fact, when this episode comes out, Frank, the awards will have just taken place. Okay. How about I read out the nominees for some of the major awards and then you give your predictions? That could be fun. Uh, 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 All right, let's do it. You probably haven't seen many of them. I haven't seen many of them either. Let me find them. Hold on a sec. Let me get these up here. Uh, All right, so best picture. Okay. Uh, The first one is Top Gun Maverick. You seen that? I've seen that. It is so close to the original that I was showing the boys the, uh, the start sequence and I didn't realize that I was showing them the wrong movie. I enjoyed it in a completely mindless, ridiculous Tom Cruise with his top off kind of way. I loved it. I thought it was really good. I thought it was better than the original, to be honest. The next one here is Women Talking. Have you seen that one? Nope. Nope. This is this is great. This is this is why we shouldn't do a movie podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next one is Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. You seen that? Uh, I did see that. I think that's a much more interesting movie. It should win above Top Gun because uh, Top Gun, you know, it's fun. And the thing that's amazing about it is the the cultural relevance in terms of people who saw the original now seeing it again in a different way. And Tom Cruise is like 95 and still flying his own airplanes and doing his own stunts. But as a movie of its own, it's, it's just a, it's just an action movie. No, I really like the way that the the female role in this new Top Gun, she's very much an independent woman when they're on the yacht, she's driving the yacht. He has got no idea how to be on a yacht. Yeah. I like that. I like the way it's changed from the original for the better. The next one here is The Banshees of Inner Sharon. Have you seen that one? No, but I, I suspect I would really like this one. I like both lead actors and I'm keen to see it. So I'm going to say that's an amazing yeah. movie, even though I haven't seen it. Good, good <laughs> idea. I haven't seen it and I, I, I agree it's probably going to be good. Uh, the next one, Triangle of Sadness. Have not heard of it. Neither have I. The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg. Have you seen that? <sighs> no, but uh, it's probably good but I kind of don't want to see it. <laughs> this is riveting. The next one, All Quiet on the Western Front. You've seen that one? I had to read that book in high school. Yeah, I saw that actually. It's amazing. It, it's nothing revolutionary in that war is bad. Mm-hmm. The way it juxtaposes, do you like that big word? I don't think we've used juxtaposes before. Um, the way it juxtaposes the people making the decisions of sending these young people to war and the justifications that they have versus the realities of the front line is so disgusting and confronting mm-hmm. and still super relevant to what's happening like right now in These some days, yeah. parts of the world. Unfortunately. Yes. Uh, the next one, Avatar, The Way of Water. I think James Cameron is a terrible director. I dislike almost every single movie he has made. The ones that are not terrible, like T2, say, True Lies, would be so much better if someone else had made it. So, no, I have not seen it. I'm not going to see Smurfahontas number two. (laughs) 
I haven't seen it. I did enjoy the original Avatar, and I think Titanic is pretty good. I only saw that for the first time recently. Oh, really? It is a good movie. Uh, the next one, Elvis, Baz Luhrmann film. You saw, seen that one? Don't like Baz Luhrmann either. <laughs> Look at you. Yeah, I originally liked Baz Luhrmann with some of his original stuff, but yeah, I've, I've, I've definitely lost interest. And the final one in the, there's so many, isn't there, in the best picture category is Tar. I think that's got Kate Blanchett in it. Have you seen that mm. one? No. All right, no comment. Best picture you're going with? I think I'm going with everything, everywhere, all at once. We'll check back in the next episode and see how you did with your prediction. See if I did better with that than with uh, the renal cell carcinoma. I think it's pretty safe to say that we should steer clear of talking about movies (laughs) and popular culture in future episodes. That's enough movie talk. So let's listen to Jenny Huang tell her story about incidental thyroid nodules and then Frank and I will be back for another chat, an actual radiology-related chat after that. I became a physician to improve human health. As a young radiologist, I was drawn to the aspect of diagnosis on imaging. But several years into becoming an attending, I realised this mindset of diagnosis without judgement was leading to a cancer epidemic, an epidemic of overdiagnosis. I'm Jenny Hong. I'm from Johns Hopkins Medicine in the United States, but I'm really a radiologist of the world. I'm ethnically Chinese. I grew up in Australia and trained in Australia at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. I've lived in the United States since I was a fellow in 2007, and I love, love, love traveling around the world. I'm here to tell my story of the incidental thyroid nodule. Now, I have no slides to obsess about, so I'm just going to go back to basics and hopefully I can keep you listening to the very end. I'm going to talk to you about how this pursuit of reducing the workup of incidental thyroid nodules started for me. I'm going to share facts that everyone should know. And then I'm going to tell you about three inflection points in the story of the incidental thyroid nodule and how I was involved. Where did it all begin? Uh, It was the end of 2011. I wrote a review article about the incidental thyroid nodule, and it was hard work. Hard work from the point of view that I was a young mother to an infant and had very little sleep. But in addition, it was hard work because there wasn't that much out in the radiology literature with guidance on what to do with the incidental thyroid nodule detected on CT, MRI, or ultrasound. And putting the article together involved reading across specialties. And when it was all done, I really had an aha moment. In addition to that, I had a sickening feeling that I had been doing the wrong thing for so many years in my recommendations for incidental thyroid nodules, and I had contributed to waste, and I had contributed to harm. So what did I learn? Uh, I I tell people these uh, three essential thyroid facts that everyone should know. The first essential fact is that thyroid nodules are common, but the risk of them being malignant is really low. If we're looking at CT and MRI, if the imaging covers a thyroid, about 15 to 20% of those patients will have an incidental thyroid nodule. If we're talking about ultrasound, if you happen to be waving the probe around the thyroid, then half of those patients will have thyroid nodules. 
So it's a very common problem for radiologists, but what's the risk of malignancy? What's the chance that uh, you're looking at a cancer? It's actually less than 2%. 2% in an unselected cohort where you're taking all thyroid nodules, not just the suspicious ones. So for what, how common the problem is and the risk, uh, working up thyroid nodules you could regard as a waste of uh, time, money, and resources. The second essential fact is that the workup is costly. Uh, yes, I know, it's just an ultrasound, right? But uh, that ultrasound actually starts a chain of events. It's an ultrasound of a nodule that may be deemed as suspicious, that may receive biopsy, may receive follow-up. So there's an additional resource there. If we go on to biopsy, then you get some results. And the decision points here are to repeat the biopsy, do expensive molecular testing, or even go to surgery. In an, a study that we did and um, another study in a surgical journal, we found that 25 to 41% of incidental nodules that have an FNA actually go to surgery. And you're saying, well, gosh, I didn't think the malignancy rate was that high. You told me earlier that it was less than 2%. Well, it's not that those are all malignant nodules. Uh, you see, one fact that I didn't understand before writing the review paper is that thyroid pathology is not precise at all. It's not just benign and malignant. In fact, 60% are benign, 5% are definitely malignant. But then the other 35%. They can be indeterminate, suspicious, and follicular. And often those lesions end up going to surgery because people just want a definitive diagnosis. And guess what? At surgery, 51% of incidental thyroid nodules are actually benign. So think about the patient at the end, all that time, consulting, having the biopsy, having the surgery, interruption of life events and anxiety, and it's still just a benign nodule. The last fact to know about is that thyroid cancer is actually indolent. Uh, now, you may have thought, well, that 2% risk is risky enough for me to want to work up that thyroid nodule. Uh, well, the fact is that even if that thyroid nodule is malignant, the outcome is excellent. Uh, one fact to know is that if the thyroid cancer is less than three centimeters, the 10-year relative survival is over 99%. There's only a 1% risk that you're going to die of thyroid cancer if you have a thyroid cancer less than three centimeters in 10 years. And the other piece of this that did make me sick when we come to learn about thyroid cancer and epidemiology is the overwhelming evidence of overdiagnosis. So overdiagnosis is a diagnosis of a cancer that would otherwise not have resulted in any harm to the patient. Thyroid cancer is a classic example of this in addition to uh, prostate cancer, which I learned about in medical school. Uh, so the incidence of thyroid cancer tripled since 1980. And throughout that time, despite the increase in diagnosis of small cancers, there was no change in mortality at all. So all those cancer diagnoses without any change in mortality for the patient. And what made me sick about these statistics was that I had contributed to this overdiagnosis 
giving a patient a, a terrifying diagnosis of cancer, putting them through surgery, radioactive iodine treatment, and lifelong monitoring uh, for something that wouldn't have resulted in any change in their survival at all. So now armed with these three essential thyroid facts from doing the review paper and then having the aha moment followed by that sickening feeling, I decided that we needed to do something, at least locally. So at Duke, where I was practicing, uh, we came up with a new system for recommending workup for incidental thyroid nodules that we would see on CT and MRI. And this was called the Duke three-tier system. Compared to the status quo, which was working up any nodule that was one centimeter or greater, or at least mentioning it in the impression, what was the Duke three-tier system? Well, it was not particularly exciting, not groundbreaking, but really easy to remember, which is the key thing. With patients that were under the age of 35, then let's stick with the one centimeter size cutoff for workup. However, for patients 35 or older, let's nudge that size cut off to 1.5 centimeters before we recommend workup or report the nodule in the impression. And then on top of the tier, if a patient had invasion outside the thyroid, if they had abnormal lymph nodes, then you would work up the thyroid nodule with ultrasound, no matter the size. Now, this is all good and well. We used it at Duke and it wouldn't have gotten any further and you wouldn't have been hearing about this today if not for the first inflection point. And the hero of the first inflection point is a radiologist at Johns Hopkins, David Usum. We had shared the podium at uh, several meetings and he heard about the Duke's three-tier system and he said, why don't you do some research on this? Show people the evidence. And my immediate response was, oh, you know, this study would not be possible. You know, how can I gather all the data? You know, this wouldn't be funded. I was giving myself excuses. And he said, you know, why don't you just get started? And so uh, the first paper, I think, was the most significant. And that was a paper that was retrospective review of CT uh, studies at Duke showing thyroid nodules, and also applying the Duke 3 tier system to a one centimeter threshold to the SEER database, which was a cancer database um, in the United States. And what do we show? Two important facts. Um, first one was that just by increasing that size threshold for patients 35 and older, we could reduce the workup of thyroid nodules by 46% compared to a one centimeter size threshold. So a five millimeter increase does make a difference. And then when we looked at the SEER uh, database, it did not result in a significant difference in cancer detection rate. The second inflection point was in 2013. Uh, I was on a trip to Australia. I happened to be giving a talk at uh, the Royal Melbourne Hospital in the hero of this story is uh, Frank Gaylard, Andrew Dixon, and Radiopedia. Frank happened to be in the room listening to my talk. Um, at this stage, I had done some of these early research studies, and he said, we have a website. It's called Radiopedia. You may have heard of it. We're starting to publish um, blogs. Why don't you write a blog? And I thought, well, I'm busy, but 
I really care about this topic and I don't care how many more people I reach, but hopefully it'll be just a a couple hundred more. And this is a really great chance. So I wrote the blog uh, and then Frank, Andrew and their team made it look sensational. Um, It was posted on Facebook and I was stunned that within 48 hours, there was so much engagement on the uh, Radiopedia Facebook. And then uh, looking back at the number of views, the blog received 34,000 views in a year. And this was just so inspiring to me that I was onto something, that other radiologists found that this problem was annoying and they wanted guidance. And the Duke three-tier system seemed to give guidance. The third inflection point in my long story is when ACR uh, took interest and made this a project for the Incidental Findings Committee. And the hero of this story, apart from the ACR, is Lincoln Berlin, who was the chair of the Incidental Findings Committee. And then the committee members, uh, two in particular, Frank Tesla and Bill Middleton. Uh, who were so supportive of adopting the Duke Three Tiers criteria as part of the ACR white paper criteria. Essentially, uh, ACR white paper for incidental thyroid nodules was published online in 2014 and then in print in 2015. And here was the first step where radiologists were providing guidelines to reduce the unnecessary workup of incidental thyroid nodules leading to increased healthcare costs, harm to the patient, and an overdiagnosis of thyroid cancer. You think that was that was all good. And today it, it seems like it is, but back then in 2014, it was incredibly controversial. We received editorials from our endocrinology and thyroid surgery uh, colleagues that this wasn't our decision to make. We were being paternalistic. Of course, we were well-intending, but uh, this was not our lane to not mention thyroid nodules in the impression. Uh, and of course, uh, the year after the publication of that white paper, the ATA provided recommendations in their own guidelines, and they recommended doing a thyroid ultrasound on every thyroid finding. Uh, that did not shift until 2017 when there was more evidence coming out on the overdiagnosis of thyroid cancer worldwide. And then the final stamp was the US Preventative Service Task Force recommending against the screening of thyroid cancer in 2017. Okay, so I've uh, taken you from the beginning to when I first stepped into this landmine of thyroid nodules I told you about three essential thyroid facts that uh, anyone with a thyroid should know, but especially a radiologist. And I've talked to you about uh, this journey of uh, finally getting these recommendations into the ACR white paper. And so let's take a recap at looking at how this has changed the incidence of thyroid cancer. So the incidence of thyroid cancer was 14.5 people per 100,000 in 2015. And then the incidence in thyroid cancer, according to the SEER database in in the last uh, year that's entered in 2019, it fell. (laughs) It fell to 13.7 per 100,000. 
And this may not seem like much of a, a decrease. It's barely uh, one person um, per 100,000 in four years. But this is significant because, as I told you, it had been rising in the last three decades and it hasn't been this low since 2008. Uh, so we have definitely made ground with reducing thyroid nodule biopsies through the ACR white paper for incidental thyroid uh, findings, as well as ACR tirads. Now, as I finish up, I want to take it back to the reading room. Let's take it back to radiologists. Uh, and I want to show you what I say in the reading room and why what you say matters with a, a new article. So in the reading room, if it doesn't meet criteria for workup with the incidental thyroid findings, uh, white paper, that is it's less than 1.5 centimeters in someone that's 35 or older, or less than one centimeter in someone that is under the age of 35, I just report it in the body and say that thyroid nodule doesn't meet criteria for follow-up with ACR criteria. Or if they're really small, I might not say anything at all. Uh, when the nodule does meet the criteria for recommending an ultrasound, I don't just say the nodule and then recommend ultrasound. I think about the patient and how they're going to receive this information. I'll state a 1.9 centimeter thyroid nodule in the left lobe of thyroid, and then it'll be followed by this sentence. Although the nodule is most likely benign, it could be further evaluated with ultrasound because honestly, there may be other factors that mean that this patient shouldn't get an ultrasound. They may have terminal cancer. They may be 85. In that case, diagnosing a cancer in those two circumstances isn't going to improve their health. If you thought that how you report it really doesn't make a difference, well, let me give you an update paper which was just published in October 2022 online by Drake et al. in Thyroid. The title of this paper is Reporting of Incidental Thyroid Nodules on Chest CT and the Impact of Nodule Evaluation, a Retrospective Cohort Study. Now, I love the study. I don't love the discussion, but this was a study. It was a retrospective uh, review of thyroid nodules reported on chest CT from 1995 to 2006, and then clinical follow-up thereafter. They looked at the way radiologists reported the nodules and determined that in 48%, the radiologist reported the impression, and in 52%, they reported it in the body. In this study, there were 1,460 CTs with incidental thyroid nodules, and the cancer incidence was only 1.1%. So there you have it, a very low risk of thyroid uh, cancer. Now, what was the difference between if you had your nodule reported in the impression versus the body? If you had it reported in the impression, you were seven times more likely to get a biopsy. Because why? You flag the nodule as I'm important by putting it in the impression. And then because you were more likely to get a biopsy, those with nodules reported in impression were three times more likely to get surgery. And both of those differences were statistically significant. What wasn't statistically significant was the outcomes. Cancer diagnosis, death from cancer, and overall death. No difference between the two groups. Okay, 
This shows that radiologists have a significant impact on outcomes by the way we report the thyroid nodule. And it also shows that working up that thyroid nodule is really not beneficial in improving outcomes for that patient. In fact, it resulted in unnecessary biopsies and surgery. Now, I did mention that I didn't like the discussion, and here is why. The authors, who were not radiologists, said, providers are less likely to be aware of incidentalomas only reported in the body of the report, and this approach has been suggested as a way of influencing the ordering provider's evaluation decision. And then further on in the article, they say, this strategy, if true, is a clear violation of patient autonomy, the right of patients to make decisions about their medical care. Wow. Uh, These authors have done a sensational study that actually shows that working up the thyroid nodule and putting the nodule impression doesn't improve health, only improves workup and costs. But yet they are still hung up that this decision is not for a radiologist to make. Well, let me take you back to the beginning. As radiologists, we don't make diagnoses without judgment. Radiologists, I'm going to conclude here, are not just detectors of findings. We are here to interpret findings, provide guidance, adhere to best practices like the ACR white paper. And through that, for this topic alone, we're going to play a very important role in combating this epidemic of thyroid cancer overdiagnosis and improving patients' health. Thank you for listening. If you got to the end and really look forward to how uh, Frank and Andrew are going to discuss this. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye. Uh, not all heroes wear capes, Frank. I think if, if you're a hero and I'm a hero, then then Jenny is definitely a hero too. Yeah, abs- much more than us, actually. She's actually done hard work. If if you were going to be a hero, just you know, hypothetically, Dixon, would you wear a cape or are you a no-cape hero? I think I'd be a no-cape hero. Really? No, surely you'd want to ponce around and swish it about and oh, make a big thing I'm not about saying it. I, I'm not saying I wouldn't wear something <laughs> utterly flamboyant. I'm just saying a cape has probably been done. It's slightly impractical, but yeah. I don't think I'd be able to resist. I'd like the whole, you know, being in the shadows of a deep cloak. (laughs) We said we were going to talk radiology in the outro, not not get distracted. (laughs) But before we do get into the thyroid, I just, I've come up with a little theory. Mm -hmm. If you want to sound like you've done an MBA, then you just need to mention the term inflection point in all of your talks. What do you reckon? yeah, that's a that's a given. And synergy. I think synergy works well too. Up until a few years ago, I don't reckon I'd ever heard the term inflection point. And now I seem to hear it all the time. I think there was an inflection point a few years ago where it became common. <laughs> There's quite a lot we could chat about related to Jenny's talk. It was really fantastic. But one thing that I wanted to ask you about, Frank, something that really gets my goat. Uh, yep. you, you have pet peeves. I have things that get my goat. And that is the idea that other clinicians often feel that radiologists should just report what they see, you know, detect, describe without applying any real clinical judgment. I think that's completely wrong and is not what being a radiologist is about. But what do you think, Frank? No, I completely agree. I think, in fact, there are some clinicians that feel that way and there are some radiologists that feel that way too because 
it's not infrequent that you read a report where the report is just a factual description of the images Hmm. and often doesn't draw conclusions. I think especially in these days with the spectre of AI image recognition, if all you're doing is describing the pictures, then you're not really doing your job. I think every report should take all the information available and move it forward within your area of, of expertise. And that includes clinical recommendations if appropriate. Yeah. And otherwise, what's the alternative? Otherwise, the alternative is that we report every single finding. You can't exclude most things. So every white matter area, you would have to say, you know, it's probably ischemic, but could be demyelinating or could be a low-grade tumor. And if you did that, that's not factually incorrect, but it would generate so many of the problems that, that Jenny sort of alluded to in her talk. And the other thing is that when you list them out in your conclusion, you're basically giving everything the same weighting if that's what you're yeah. doing, if every single finding is listed there. And so therefore, you're actually potentially hiding a really important diagnosis because you're having all these other incidental things that are thrown around in your conclusion. You do that, but you also do real harm to people. And, and there's two examples that I want to bring out of that. And one is directly related to Jenny's talk, which is over the last 10 years, I know of three patients who have died from a thyroid FNA. Mm, gosh. Uh, not at my hospital, but around, you know, around Australia. I know for a fact that two of them were just routine, like, well, what we call routine FNAs of a thyroid nodule. So yes, it's a safe procedure, but it's not 100% safe. And you can only be doing it if there's a really good reason. So pushing towards more investigations, more biopsies is wasteful uh, of funding and wasteful of people's time, but it occasionally actually causes serious harm. The other side of it is the psychological harm that comes to some patients when they read diagnoses. And the best example of that that I can think of is Tarlov cysts. You know, Tarlov cysts, small perineural cysts around the sacral nerve roots or lumbar nerve roots most commonly. And in the vast majority of people, they're asymptomatic. I think it's fairly safe to say that in a small proportion, there are very large Tarlov cysts that are symptomatic. There's large case series showing that aspiration can help, et cetera. But the reality is that 999 out of 1,000 are completely asymptomatic. And so mentioning them with the wrong patient, it can become a real label that results in anxiety and obsession over this finding. And it hasn't happened for a while, but there was a period where I was getting emails written all in all caps of <laughs> patients that were, it sounded like a conspiracy theory, but like we'd have a, a case of a lumbar disc extrusion and there'd also be a, a small tail of cyst somewhere. And they would write yelling about how this was misdiagnosed and it's negligent because this person's life has been ruined because of this cyst that causes all these problems. And you go online and there's all these forums and support groups of people who are genuinely in pain but are attributing it to the wrong thing or they've fixated on it. And you can say, oh, well, it's true. It's not my responsibility. You know, I'm just reporting what's there. But at the end of the day, if you're doing more harm than good, I think that is absolutely your responsibility. Absolutely. Pineal cysts would be another example that I often 
have to remove from reports of my trainees because they're basically normal. Or I don't know what normal means, but they're never going to cause a problem and the patient isn't ever going to do anything about it. And all it can do is make them miserable. If you're the kind of clinician that just wants a description of your reports, then you're missing out on what radiologists can do. It's also, frankly, insulting of a colleague from another specialty. Yeah, that's what gets my goat. Saying that, uh, you know, just uh, don't think, monkey, just describe. Mm. And the same could be said about any other specialty. You could tell surgeons don't question the referral, just operate, or uh, cardiologists don't just prescribe your tablets or whatever it is. Um, so, no, I, I don't have a goat, but if I had one, it would have been thoroughly got by that sort of thing. <laughs> All right, we've actually got to we've actually got to get out of here, Frank, because we're going out for Japanese for lunch yes, today. Yes, we are indeed. So, a very quick recap: so, age greater than thirty five, incidental thyroid nodule on CT or MRI, it needs to be greater than one point five centimeters before you'd even consider it mentioning it in the conclusion of your report. Uh, for age below thirty five, it needs to be at least one centimeter before mentioning it in the conclusion of the report, uh, as per the ACR white paper guidelines. And if everyone does that. The world will be a much better place, Frank, and my goat will no longer be got. <laughs> All right. Now, how can people get in contact with us, Frank? Well, we're at Radiopedia on Twitter and on Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylard and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. That's D-R, Andrew Dixon. You can email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with ideas and feedback. We've been getting some, so please keep it coming. Let us know the kinds of episodes that you particularly like. And, you know, let us know what your pet goats, peeves are as well. Pet goats? <laughs> pet goats. Oh, my pet goat's name is Alistair. <laughs> oh, we should definitely have a listener pet corner. <laughs> Send in photos of your pets. That'll be a new segment. For a podcast, yes, where we describe a pet for you. That would be amazing. We can just describe people's pets using radiology terms. Oh, that's not a bad idea. I do love radiology words and how they convey things. So maybe we can come back to that another time and try and describe non-radiological things with radiology words. If you <laughs> want to help support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our online courses and conference. In doing so, you'll be helping us to give free conference access to people in 125 low and middle income countries. And Frank, what else can people do to help us? You can also leave a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. Very good, mate. All right, we better go and get some Japanese. I'm, I'm hungry. Let's I'm do it. I'm starving. Uh, we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. <sighs> do it. Stay rad. <laughs> Stay rad. See you next week. All right, let's go get some sushi. Bye. Bye.